Good morning, everybody. Happy Big Sunday, which, if you didn't know, is the first Sunday of every month. And there's a lot of things that are big about it. One is that we're here together. So I guess technically every Sunday is a big Sunday. But we have designated some things that you've probably picked up on. One is the name tags, right? Pretty fancy. We figured once a month we would help each other out to figure out who we are and what our names are. So that's Big Sunday, the first Sunday of the month. We will do that. The other thing about Big Sunday is that we have an opportunity for our treehouse kindergarten through fifth graders to be in service with us. Now, this is a, this is a really important aspect of church life. If you didn't know, the numbers that um, are kind of proven over the last couple of decades, really, is people who are in a children's program walking through um, what would be like a treehouse thing into youth group, and then when they go away to college, the percentage of people that continue on in their faith journey on their own after these wonderful programs um, is frighteningly low. Like 80% plus don't continue on. Um, I'm not saying this is the answer to all of that. However, I think part of the reason why kids don't continue on is they just don't know what it's like to be in church with people who are older than them. And so, you know, it's a little scary. If you can remember being that young, you're like, who are all these creepy old people? <clears throat> you know? If he didn't laugh at you, then that, that's probably maybe you. You're, you're the creepy old guy. Brent's definitely a creepy old guy. <clears throat> but we love him anyway. So that's, yeah, I know. <clears throat> that's a little bit about to the big Sunday that we have going on the first Sunday of the month. Let me see a few other things. One, um... Robert Hunt is back with us. Yes. <clears throat> Just got back from the, the Philippines uh, in a little deployment down there, and I asked him how it was, and he said it was hot and very sticky. Is that true? Yeah. So, yeah, he's really cold, <laughs> coming from tropical, crazy humidity. Welcome back, brother. Glad to have you back with us. I think you're the last one of the, the previous wave of deployments to return. We've since sent other people out, but I don't think, I think you're the last one to come back. So we're glad that you're with us. Um, the other sort of, of housekeeping thing, if you want to call it that, is you see some of the ladies are making their way back in. My beautiful wife is here. I'm glad that she's back here with us. Um, <clears throat> just a few words on that. This is our first effort at putting together something like this. And from an outsider's perspective, although I knew kind of intimately what was going on, the prayer, the, the collective work and effort to build this awesome thing has been, I think, just really borne out in a lot of fruit over the last 48 hours. Uh, I've heard a lot of great things as I've communicated with my wife and others and their wives. So I, God definitely moved in a big way up there. And so what I want to do is encourage all of us, particularly if you are the husband, the fiance, the, the boyfriend, the significant other, whatever role that is that you play, that you would make an effort to embrace whatever it is that God did in that woman's life. Because if you've ever been to something like this, you get pumped up. You're like, man, let's, let's take on the world. And you come back and husband's like, take the kids, do everything. I've been doing your job for like forever. Right? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I guess everything that I just went through is for naught. 
right? We have that tendency sometimes, especially guys that maybe struggle with kind of keeping up all the things that they don't realize are going on on a regular basis. So one, thank your wife for everything that she's been doing that you didn't realize was going on. But the, the, the bigger thing, I think, in this setting is for us and for everybody that is in that category to really listen, hear what God did, ask how we can support what God did, give them some space even perhaps. I know that a lot of the husbands that had wives go away aren't here, but hopefully they can listen to this um, online. Um, just, just give them some space. It's like a mini deployment, I guess, if you think about that. We tell people all the time, hey, when you're coming back, don't just jump right back in and start taking over all these things that your wife was doing just fine without you, <laughs> right? Give some space. So that, that, the same thing is true for here, and, and I want to make sure that we, we provide that as a church. And so if there's anything that you guys need, um, the ladies, there's ways that we can pray with you, ways that we can hear what God did. I think we want to use some testimonies along the way to hear what God did through that. But I also want to thank everybody that, that went and was involved in the participation and the planning. This is a big deal, and I'm really, really grateful. So actually, before we even start, I'm just going to, I'm going to offer a prayer for all the ladies in that event that just took place. Lord, we are truly blessed, God, that you, you've called us into community in this church, in this place. Lord, we really do believe that church is not like family, but that we are family. Lord, I, I wasn't with the ladies this week, obviously, but I know that you were at work. I know the hours poured into laboring over and praying over this. God came to fruition these past few days. I know there was answered prayers, Lord. I know there was just tremendous breakthrough and experience with the Holy Spirit. So we ask, Lord, first of all, we thank you for that. And we ask that you would sustain that work, Lord, that it wouldn't just be a one-time uh, experience, Lord, but something that, that pivots and, and shapes the future for these ladies. God, that there be much fruit born out of that investment that they made over these last few days. And help us as the body of Christ, as families, both spiritually and the physical families, Lord, to, to support and prop up and encourage them to grow and, and catapult even off of what you started in them this weekend or continued, Lord. Bless them, keep them, and thank you for many more years of these kinds of events in our future. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so now I really got to hurry because I ate up like seven minutes of my time just talking to you about this kind of stuff. <clears throat> Where are we? We're in Genesis. We are in Genesis. So we started last week. Mike did a good job getting us off. Um, if you ever think about what guys go through when they're thinking, uh, all right, I'm going to preach this Sunday. And usually, you know, it's you know, four or five verses. We're in Ephesians or something. It's kind of like, eh, no problem. Not no problem, but certainly manageable. And then it's like, hey, we're going to cover Genesis, which is like thousands of years and 50 chapters in the Bible. And you're going to preach first and you're going to set up this entire thing and you have 45 minutes. Go. I was like, where do you even start, right? And I feel that way to a certain degree because we're only in chapter two and I'm still like, man, I feel like there's just so much that we have to get through in order to continue to have a strong foundation of what's happening. But uh, I just want to encourage you along the way. I know people come and go and there's deployments and, and trainings and family 
vacations and all kinds of stuff. The reason that we record the sermons online is so that you can keep up with us. I don't think that anybody is searching out Pillar Church of Oceanside from around the world that wants to hear our messages, right? Uh, but, but it is for us, right? So these are our tools that we want to put in front of you as we go. So where are we today? We're in Genesis chapter 2, and uh, I want to just kind of <clears throat> briefly offer a few words before we dig in further. There's some treehousers in here with us, and there's some folks that weren't here last week. So um, if you weren't here, or if you're um, treehouse, the word Genesis actually does mean something. It's not just a cool word. It means beginning or origins. That's what the, the word means, right? And it, it sets the scene, really, for everything that comes, not just in the book of Genesis, but for the entire Bible. That's what we're setting a path for right now as we look at what that is. <clears throat> Mike drew our attention to a couple of key things last week, and I, again, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. I'm not going to rehash that. But we have to have a strong grasp and understanding of what Genesis teaches. Why? Well, most of us are more familiar, I would say, with the New Testament than the Old Testament. Is that, is that a fair statement? I would say, you know, by and large. There are over 200 quotes or references to the Old Testament, to Genesis rather, in the New Testament alone. So we, as New Testament readers, have to understand what is being taught in Genesis. That's a lot, 200 times. So, you know, we really need to have that influence and impact what that looks like. <clears throat> and it's actually one of the reasons we want to study Genesis is because we have to know the beginning in order to understand the end. It all works together. And so let's read our text for the day. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's Genesis chapter 2. We're starting in verse 4 and following. I'll read it out of my Bible. <clears throat> Here we go. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed God and the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Fishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the, third, the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the river Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, and I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Father, we again just come to you asking for your help this morning. We know that there is truth and there is life and purpose in your word. We ask that you would help us to, to see what this truth is for us, how we can utilize this word to live a life pleasing to you. Lord, I pray for open hearts, distractions to be minimal, Lord. Father, I ask for your help, Lord. I pray that you would guard me from error as I speak. Use this time, I pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have questions along the way this morning, you can text them to that number. And at the end, we'll come back up and do a little Q&A as usual. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, still pretty near the beginning. And so I want to be sensitive to one thing before we jump in a little bit further. Because if you've ever studied anything about Genesis, you know that there are some problems that people have, some challenges. Um, One objection when comparing comparing Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is that they seem to be two different accounts that contradict each other. I don't know if you noticed that or picked up on that at all, but I'm not going to unpack that too deeply, but I do want to point out that um, this is not a second account that is contradictory. What it is, it's a more detailed account of chapter 1 with the pinnacle of God's creation. Who's the pinnacle of God's creation, Treehouse? It's us, right? We're the top. Okay, good. I just want a head nod. I was making sure. <clears throat> it's us, right? The pinnacle, the top of God's creation. So now he's kind of recapping in greater detail with us at the center of the scene. This is kind of a common thing with writing t- um, back in that day, right? They would give this kind of broad overview, and then they'd zero in and give some pertinent details to what, what's going on. So that's what's happening here, right? It's not a, um, uh, a contradictory statement. It's actually complementary, if you want to look at that. Um, again, I don't want to get bogged down in language, kind of technical stuff, but the way that you translate some of these verses can contribute to what these so-called contradictions are. And if you want to talk more about this, I'd be happy for you to buy me a cup of coffee this week and we can talk all about it you want. All right? My schedule's open. Let's, let's, let's get into this. Um, my actual goal is not to talk about these apparent contradictions, but to really discover what the truth is that Genesis chapter 2 is telling us because there are some very important things that we need to understand. Okay, so Origins is the name of this series, and Genesis chapter 2 continues with this idea of origins or beginnings by orienting us around the beginnings of us, people, God's unique and special creation. That's us. What we discover in these verses is God's original design and intent for us. God had a plan for 
his creation and his people. Not only what they're designed for us as men and women are, what is their role in creation, and what is our role together as man and woman, particularly in the institution of marriage, right? He had, before the foundations of the earth, already had all this planned out. This is God's plan and his design. Nothing that we're talking about is going to catch God by surprise. And you're like, oh, I didn't see that one coming, right? This is all God's plan. So here's what I'm calling the message this morning. Quite simply, on God's terms. This chapter is God's terms for creation and specifically humanity. This is what he planned. This is how God set things into motion for his story to take place. And so I want to highlight just a few things that are going to help us, hopefully with greater clarity, see what God's design for creation would be. <clears throat> All right, so let's, let's um, start at the beginning because I don't want to gloss over anything. There's some key things, but I, I want to hit all the verses so that there's nothing that you're like, what about this? Verse 4, if you have your Bibles, you can look at verse 4. <clears throat> Starts out with this interesting phrase, these are the generations of. You're actually going to find that exact statement 10 times in Genesis. What it is, is it's a way of breaking up or organizing uh, the structure within Genesis and, and how the author, Moses, is, is talking about. The, the subject of that line, these are the generations of fill in the blank, whatever that is, is what he's about to talk about, generally speaking, right? So in this case, these are the generations of what? The heavens and the earth, and they were created. Now, what does that mean? I would not rephrase it, but maybe amplify it a little bit and, and maybe call it, here's what came of God's creation. God created, now this is what happened with God's creation. That's kind of what he is about to explain. And if you have your Bibles in your hands, you can flip and notice that that will begin in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It will go all through chapter 2, all through chapter 3, all through chapter 4, and look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. What does it say? Now we've got a similar statement, right? That's going to go through all of 5. And look at chapter 6, verse 9. What does it say? These are the generate. Yeah, yeah. And then go over to the 10, verse 1. What does it say? These are the generate. Okay, you get the point, right? I'm not going to go through all of them. <clears throat> but you can see how this is structured and organized, and it's, it's going to help us to kind of orient our minds about what's happening, okay? Bigger picture, though, we, think, we see that Genesis is in two big chunks. We're taking the first chunk right now, which is chapter 1 through chapter 11. We're going to stop at chapter 11 because that actually leads us up to Easter, all right? And then we'll pick back up for the rest of the story, but that's what's happening there structure-wise. But verses 5 and 6, there's a few things happening here. Uh, God is setting up sort of this before and after scenario. Now, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but in the next chapter, something really huge is going to happen, right? I, I'm pretty sure that everybody knows what that is, but I'm not going to spoil too much of it, right? Something earth-shattering is going to happen in the next chapter. So think of, or I should say, think along the lines of, Here's God saying, before things got messed up, here's what my perfect creation looked like. 
That's what these generations are, and that's what this opening 5 and 6 verse um, are kind of communicating. Before there were shrubs, thorns, thistles, before man had to labor and sweat just to get veggies out of the ground. How many of you treehousers like broccoli? Oh, we got one. How about cauliflower? No? Can you imagine having just to, to work really hard so you could eat broccoli? I mean, come on. Talk about the curse, right? I mean, that's, that's it. <clears throat> but before all that, right? Five and six is saying this is really what it looked like, okay? Before all that happened. And, and that's going to make more sense when we get to chapter three, verses 17 through 19. We're going to put all that together when we get there, but just kind of hold on to that for now. But it's also anticipating God's purpose, part of God's purpose for man. Um, look at verse five of chapter four, or chapter two, rather. What is missing along with the rain that's going to help yield the crops? God had not caused it to rain on the ground, and there was no, there was no man. There's nobody to work the ground, right? God caused things to come up, trees with seed and all those kinds of things, but now we're talking about vegetables to eat and wheat and those kinds of things. Man is needed to cultivate those things out of the ground, and there is no man. So he's kind of setting up this scene like there's something missing, right? There's no rain. I'm going to take care of that. Don't worry about that. But there's also no man to to work the ground. So we need something to work the ground. So verse 7 is right on time where he says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed breath into his nostrils, right? So God saw a need and all of a sudden, boom, we're on the scene. It's really important for us to understand that we are special in the sense that God created us and designed us for a purpose, right? We're not wandering this earth going, why am I here? What is my purpose? We have a God-given purpose and we need to understand what that is. And I think one of the most well-known aspects of how God created us is that we were created in His image and likeness, right? Told that all the time in church life. You're you're in the image and likeness of, of God Himself. This is a big deal. This is a very big deal. But you think about our humble beginnings, right? Going out in the backyard, pulling up some handfuls of dirt. All of a sudden, we've got man breathing the breath of life into the nostrils, And yet, out of that, God creates us in his image. And then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion and rule over every other thing created on the earth. So let me ask you this. This is for the treehousers. What other person do you know of Their whole purpose is to rule over a people or a land. They wear a crown. What is it? A king, right? A king rules, don't they? I mean, that's their job. Maybe they don't, but they're supposed to, right? So here's our first hint as part of our purpose of mankind. Like kings, we are meant to rule 
and reign on God's behalf over his creation. He told us, have dominion over what I gave you and rule it. So part of our identity, part of our purpose is to rule. That's awesome, right? How many of you are functioning in that right now? Well, maybe you don't know quite what that looks like yet. You're like, I don't know. I don't have any crowns on or anything like that, so I don't know. But I will, I will, I will hopefully give you a little bit more to take with you on that. <clears throat> Meant to rule, reign on God's behalf, while being fruitful and multiplying the earth's population. So God has a very specific way for us, in this case, initially Adam, to do this. So where does God place Adam to begin this task? Yes. In the garden. You bet. What's the name of the garden? Anybody? The Garden of Eden, right? We can say a lot about the Garden of Eden. We can talk a whole bunch, and I'm going to explain a little bit more about what that place was like. But um, the Greek translation, actually, um, uses a word that we get, our English word, paradise. And I'm going to draw some parallels, hopefully. But do you think it seems a little bit odd that God's initiation for us to rule and reign is in a garden? Now, it is a beautiful garden, right? There's rivers and trees, and it's, it's wonderful, but there is a very real aspect of dirt, seeds, shoveling, work. Like, this is where I'm starting? Like, you, you want me to plant stuff and grow stuff? Now, I'm not a green thumb. I think maybe I'm like a yellow thumb, <clears throat> kind of. I don't kill things. But I have grown some things, and I'm not sure if you've ever planted anything in the ground um, and seen it grow. Anybody done that? Now, I'm not talking going to the store, getting a tree and putting it in the ground and go, look what I did. <clears throat> that's not what I'm, I'm talking about cultivating the ground, putting some soil that's going to you know, help nourish what it is, planting a seed in the ground, watering it, tending it, caring for it, taking the rabbits away and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, you see this little green leaf come out of the ground. You're like, yes! Look what I did, right? You water it, you care for it. All of a sudden, it gets bigger. There's a, a flower. The flower turns into this beautiful cucumber, tomato, broccoli, whatever you want it to be, right? <clears throat> this is an amazing process that happens. And if you've done that and you've been a part of cultivating it, that's, that's special. And if you haven't done it, then you... you I mean, you can get the idea of it, but there's something unique about this idea of cultivating this life that's actually got a purpose beyond just growing it out of the ground. It's going to feed us. It's going to help us do what we want to do. So Adam begins ruling the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing the power of the potential and harnessing the potential for growing seeds, right? You grow wheat turn it into bread. You take that bread, you feed your family. Your family begins to grow. That family turns into community. That community grows into a city, right? Then all of a sudden there's people that are fulfilling and meeting needs within that city, serving each other. They're, they're teachers, they're doctors, they're whatever. 
right? But this expansion that's beginning to happen, this is what ruling the earth looks like in sort of its rawest form. It's taking what God initially gave us and, and moving it forward in a good and healthy way, making something special out of, out of his creation. That's what ruling looks like for us. And as we'll see next week, God gives us a choice in how we rule. And again, not a spoiler, because I think you all know, we, we drop the ball pretty quick. We become terrible rulers, right? Because we're still ruling, we're still building, and we're expanding this incredible creation, but we're awful at it. We make a mess, and, and we'll get there. So we have this kingly role of ruling God's creation by being participants in doing um, the, the expansion of God's kingdom physically on this earth. But look at verse 15 real quick. So we have a kingly role, ruling on God's behalf, but there's something else God tells Adam to do in the garden. Verse 15. Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. To work and to keep it. Now that doesn't sound real crazy or off in any way. Yeah, just work it and keep it. Do stuff. But these words, these verbs, these two words, are very intentional. And this is not the only place that we see these two words. So there's another place not too far um, to the right in the Bible. If you just keep flipping pages. <clears throat> these two words are used to describe another set of people whose purpose it is to keep and to work another special place of God's creation. Anybody want to think they have a guess about what that special place would be? Somewhere a little bit down the line where God's presence is and there are some people that are supposed to keep it. What we got? I got a hand in the back. The tabernacle, right? The tent of meeting. This special place that the Israelites would set up, move, take it, set it up, move it down. Everywhere they went, they took this tabernacle, right? And what was in the tabernacle? The presence of God, a very special place. The same exact words that Adam tells, or that God tells Adam to work and to keep, are the same words used of the Levites, the priests, to work and to keep and to protect the temple. So, it's a little bit subtle, but you can see there is an element of a priestly role in God's design for us as well. Because we are also called to keep and work all of the things that contain God's presence, this church, and everything that we do for His kingdom. There's an aspect of us having a responsibility of working it and keeping it and shepherding it and being stewards of it, right? So there's a, a priestly role as well. That's part of God's design for his creation and humanity. How cool is that? 
Right? These are awesome responsibilities that God is giving us. All right, let's go back through the text real quick and catch some things because I know I've been bouncing around a little bit. I want to round out this setting. God formed this incredible garden. There are some rivers, and we're not going to get into like where this is specifically. We have enough information to know that it's somewhere Mesopotamia, right? The Fertile Crescent. People have done a lot of work to say, oh, this is the exact spot right here. You know, it's not the point, right? We know basically where it is. Um, we know that God put Adam in the garden to work and to keep it. We've already talked about that. But he was also given another command. We know he's supposed to rule and have dominion and, and multiply. He's supposed to work and keep the land. But then look down at verses 16 and 17. Another command. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Pretty clear, right? You see everything? Yep, you can eat all that. That one right there, don't, don't touch it. Actually, he didn't say that. He said don't eat of it, right? Is that what he said? Don't eat. Just earmark that. I think that might come into play next week. But then something else important happens. Verse 18. God says that it's not good. Um, that's actually the first time in the Bible so far where he said something other than good or very good. Everything that he's created, this is good. This is good. Light, good. Land, good. Animals, good. Man, very good. But now he's saying... It's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. I think every guy in the room, particularly the married guys in the room, can attest to how much help we need in this life with the women around us. Amen. Yes. Can I get an amen? Yeah. I think there are some men in the room right now, perhaps this past weekend, who got a really good taste of that when their wives were not around. Now I can get a real good amen. amen. <clears throat> Look, God did something incredibly generous and good by making a co-laborer for us. He did. So after... Adam names all of the animals. And you can see, <clears throat> if you have the ESV, English Standard Version Translation, in verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. This is one of those translation issues where people say, so God is recreating the animals? Didn't he already do that? On, on day six. So why does it say he's doing it again? Because their translation doesn't say had formed. They say God formed the animals. So you see there's like, it could be a contradiction. It's like, wait a minute, that's not right. That's a translation issue. I don't want to give you much more than that. All we need to know is the animals were already there and now God's bringing them to Adam. And what was his purpose in bringing the, Adam, the animals before Adam? He was going to name them, right? Whatever he brought in front of him, oh, this is that, this is that, what a cool job, right? I mean, I would have probably come up with some better names, but, <clears throat> you know, whatever. 
So he does that, and we read in verse 21 that there is no suitable, suitable helper for man. So all these animals, all these things coming, even for you dog lovers, right? There's a dog. It's like, yeah, it's not a suitable helper. Like, could be man's best friend, but it's not the same kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? No suitable helper found for man. So what does God do? He causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. Right? Treehousers, what does God take out of Adam to create Eve? Did you know that? Yes, in the back. That's right. You're going to... Yeah. One of his ribs. Yeah. Thankfully, he's in a deep sleep. Right? So he doesn't feel it. Takes one of the ribs and makes woman out of that rib. And then the language is the same as the animals. He brings the woman before Adam. And check out his response. I love this. Verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. This is like Adam stoked. He's like, finally, you've given me something that, yes! Like, he's excited about this, and he should be, right? <laughs> finally, he recognized what an awesome gift he had been given. And women are a gift of God. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Here's what I really want to emphasize. The word helper used in verse 20 that you see there is a very strong word that describes an indispensable and complementary role that the woman plays. She's equal in personhood and dignity, but unique in function. There's this quote by a, 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 a gentleman named Matthew Henry, old theologian. And this is what he says, because I can't put it any better. The woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Can't say it any better than that, so I won't even try. Mm. So we, we see now more of our purpose becoming evident. And so the chapter begins to come to a close by giving one final purpose and design for us in marriage. So within the first 55 verses of the Bible, God outlines his design for marriage. That's pretty early on. Within the first 55 verses of the Bible, here's God telling you, this, from the beginning, is my design for marriage. And what is that design? One man and one woman to be one flesh for one lifetime. That's also not mine. That's Warren Wearsby. <laughs> one woman, one man, one flesh for one lifetime. There is no room in that statement or in this text to deviate from God's plan. There's just not. It's, it's so foundational, in fact, that Jesus himself quotes this text in Matthew while he's teaching on divorce. Let's look at Matthew 19. And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them 
from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is Jesus quoting what we've just studied. It's that foundational. And if this is the reason why it's so important for us to know what the Bible teaches about marriage, because it's actually a picture of the gospel. How many have heard that before, that marriage is a picture of the gospel? How is it a picture of the gospel? So here's Jesus, the Son of God, leaving God the Father and holding fast to his bride. Who's his bride? The church. Us. Giving himself up for us. You see the language is a similarity. Leave your father and your mother. Cleave to your wife. Here's Jesus leaving the father, clinging to his wife, the bride, giving himself up for her. What a powerful image of the gospel. That's God's design for marriage from the beginning, to be a picture of the gospel. And I want to just say all of this should really demonstrate how strong of an image of God Adam had in the garden. So these roles that I've kind of outlined so far should also put kind of an immediate image in our mind from somewhere else in the Bible. Another part of the Bible where we see someone being described as a prophet, a priest, and a king. Who else is described in that manner? Who? Jesus, right? Prophet, priest, and king. That's, yeah, I know sometimes like easiest answers like, well, I don't want to say it out loud, but yeah, Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. I didn't get into the prophet part because I don't want to confuse anybody, but we see these roles in God's design for us, and then we see Jesus fulfilling these roles as prophet, priest, and king. Now, again, I don't want to dip too much into Mark's message for next week, but we all know that humanity falls into sin, and God's perfect design for mankind is marred. It's marred. It's messed up, right? It's not completely lost, but it's, it's messed up. And Jesus Christ is the one who God promises will recover the true image of God in humanity. And he's going to lead creation toward the total and complete restoration of the garden paradise that he created. You see how the story of the Bible all connects together? I'm going to work this out a little bit more for you as I, as I close up. Think about the whole garden scene. It's perfect. Perfect. Man and woman, they've got their roles. They're in this amazing relationship with each other and with God. They have everything they need. There's no sin. It's a perfect place. There's a river flowing through the garden. There's something called the tree of life. I mean, that's just got to be awesome in itself, right? This is a special place, but it's a picture of something. Turn with me. We're in the beginning. Let's go all the way to the end of the book. Revelation 21. Second to last chapter. We're going from the second chapter to the second to last chapter. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. This is uh, John's revelation, his, his image that he's been given. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw 
the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is sort of a, a bit of an image of the perfection that I was talking about earlier, but now let's really drive this picture home and go one more chapter, all the way to the very end. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life. There's a river image. Crystal, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of the God of Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 fruits, kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now take Genesis 2, imagery of the garden and the perfection that God designed, and go all the way to the end and see the same setting. God will restore humanity and mankind and creation to what he originally designed it for. God will do that. Just like Jesus is able to renew man to his original condition through the blood of Jesus. But if you stand at the beginning and just sort of look from where we are in Genesis 2, it doesn't seem like anything could go wrong. Like everything is perfect. In fact, at this point, the gospel really doesn't even make much sense. In Genesis 2, looking around, you're like, we're good. We got everything we need. What makes the good news of the gospel good news is that there's terribly bad news, which we're going to get to next week. And we're going to see how quickly we move from God's terms to our own terms. Right? All right. Let's, let's close in prayer and consider some things in our prayer. Uh, pray with me. Father, we're so grateful that you recorded the story of creation for us so that we can see what your original design for us and for this earth really is. Lord, we, we want to live lives that are in line with how you designed us to live. We want to be good image bearers. Help us to perform our, our kingly and our priestly duties as your representatives. Lord, we desperately want the world to know that there is a much better way. A way that brings hope and peace and joy and life. Lord, we know that Jesus came to this planet and lived a perfect life the life you intended for us to live. We failed. He did not. He knew, he who knew no sin, I should say, was made sin, became sin on our behalf 
He took our punishment and died in our place. We should have paid our own penalty. And Lord, you put these two amazing words, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Praise God. By grace you have been saved through faith. Lord, it says in your word that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, we're grateful for the work of the cross. God, you make all things new to include this earth and all who call on your name. Lord, if there are some here this morning that have not been made new, if they, if they have not placed their faith in you, I pray that this message, that these words would penetrate their hearts, reveal to them their desperate need for a Savior, that they can experience truly what it is to be in the image of God as you designed it. Thank you. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.